Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning, everyone. Good to be back with you guys today. Uh, It's a privilege to to sit with you guys uh, these last three weeks as uh, Johnny and Stephen and Dave have filled the pulpit. It's so cool to see that God's gifted the church to do the life of the church and to come and just to do nothing and sit and, and see God doing wonderful things through the life of the church. So it's a privilege. Uh, thank you for, for those who had been praying for us and for our family as Sarah had uh, June. Both Sarah and June are doing well, and we are excited to uh, be overwhelmed now for the rest of our life. Uh, but it's good to the glory of God. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Uh, Lord Jesus, we know that we need to hear from you. We know that uh, this season of life, there are so many things vying for our attention, um, and yet your word is clear, your word is true, and your word speaks loudly. So give us ears to hear, give us grace to repent, and Lord, endure us in all things. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The phrase, thoughts and prayers used to be something that was met with pretty universal gratitude. Um, People were generally appreciative when you said you were thinking of them and praying for them. But in our post-Christian world, it's increasingly become one of the divisive phrases in our national dialogue. Anytime there's a a tragic shooting, it wasn't a joke yet, Shelley. Anytime there's a tragic shooting, You'll see people offering on Facebook their thoughts and prayers to victims and to victims' families. And then on the other side, you'll see a group of people uh, thrashing those who say that, only wishing for thoughts and prayers. And while it's easy to just let this, this debate kind of make our digital trigger fingers itch, it's important to sit back and reflect on the the motivations and the intentions behind this debate. You see, for someone who doesn't believe in a God who cares or believe in a God who is drawn near to the world through Jesus and who is involved and powerful, prayer and thoughts really are nothing. As Christians, we know that prayers are powerful. It's not passive, it's active. Prayers aren't uh, shirking something that we should do and just hoping that it magically happens. It is an appeal to the all-powerful God of the universe that he would act, that he would do things that only God can do. And prayer is something that God has given to the church to be busy with. But for a people, or even for a culture, who doesn't believe in a sovereign biblical God, they can't take comfort in thoughts and prayers. And so when people are offended by that, there is, in a sense, a theological statement they're making, the statement that there can't be a God, and certainly if there were a God, he wouldn't care about what's going on. But more than that, what it's actually describing is the limit of sentimentality. If thoughts and prayers are just mere sentiment of sorrow and good feelings and warm wishes, they want nothing to do with it. Why? Because when lives are at stake, when needs are urgent, mere sentiment is not enough. When real consolation is yearned for, desired to be felt, real hope is demanded. 
And this is an important thing for us to wrestle with as Christians and as non-Christians during the Christmas season because Christmas time is ripe with sentimentality. From traditions to foods to decoration to music to like red and green pants back there from John Carl. The whole season is designed to have these warm fuzzies. Marketers prey on it. Candles elicit it. And even in our post-Christian culture, there's still this religious theme that permeates all of it, from nativity scenes to Hallmark movies to the lyrics of the music that are playing in our stores. There's these overtones of stars and shepherds and the virgin birth and an infant savior everywhere. But I wonder if we are all too comfortable and perhaps deceived by sentimentality. I wonder if in ways that sober reflection would show, if we in the Western world are too quick to create a world of discipleship or of church or of following Jesus, which consists more of frosted window dressing than the actual substance of the gospel. Or perhaps our efforts in evangelism are hampered because our evangelism is merely a sentimental description or discussion about the gospel. It's not that sentimentality or warm feelings or kind of unchecked emotion are bad, either in our culture or with regards to God, but it's that we all, to a degree, realize that sentimentality rarely changes things. It rarely prepares us for things, and it rarely gives us what we need to endure. But that's why in seasons like this, ripe with sentimentality, It's good for us to look at the good news of Jesus' birth and the gospel that accompanies it and see how it is far more than sentiment. In a world full of real joy, real sorrow, real trial, the gospel engages our emotions in a way which are truly transformative and sustaining. And this is so important to understand because just like those who rail against thoughts and prayers, though it comes from a secular perspective, we have perhaps been disappointed by things we chalk up to an unchecked view of sentimentality. Maybe you're someone who, when the sights and smells of sentimental Christianity are distant, you wrestle with doubt. Am I even saved? Is this how a Christian should feel? Or for those who are still seeking Jesus, if the Jesus we preach is only cosmetic, it might sound good in here where everybody paints on their airbrush smiles and we sing and we, we, we laugh and we, we pray and we go outside and we see the brokenness of the world or you encounter the brokenness in your heart and you're like, cosmetic Jesus isn't going to fix this. There are bigger problems at play than us just needing to feel the love of some mythical baby Jesus. But this is why we must seriously consider not only sentimentality, but seriously consider the way in which this wonderful story that God so designed of silent lights and starry skies and and swaddling cloths and stunned shepherds, that it actually changes us. It actually does something beyond the superficial. And in Luke chapter 2 today, we're going to see three encounters that people have with the news of Jesus' birth. And in all three of those encounters, we see emotion, 
But in looking at that emotion, we can begin to understand what's behind it, what it is that changes, what it is that prepares, and what it is that endures in ways sentimentalism never could. So what we're going to do today in Luke chapter 2, which Johnny read for us already, is we're going to see this. This is kind of the, the, the sentence we're going to break down. The three points we're going to see is that we're going to see that the news of the birth of Jesus compels, captivates, and endures our hearts. It compels us, it captivates us, and it endures us at a heart level. So let's start today by looking at the story that Johnny just read for us, and we're going to read um, the first verses, verses 8 through 20 of Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, grab one in the back. Uh, Actually, I don't know if they're out on the tables yet from our open house, but um, find somebody who looks like they know what they're doing and just steal their Bible, and we'll be okay with that. Uh, Or you could ask us where our free ones are, and we'll give you one of those too. Um, Depends upon how you respond to the whole Christmas spirit uh, in that. Um, So this is Luke 2, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Then when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So here we see the story of the shepherds, and the birth of Jesus. And it's here where we encounter our first point today, our first response to Jesus' birth, and it's this, is that the news of Jesus' birth compels the heart of the shepherds. It compelled them. And when I say compelled, I mean it made them move. They did something. What's interesting, if you go back and look at what the angels said, they never said, go see this king. There was no command. But the news was so compelling that they dropped everything and said, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's find this child of whom all these things were spoken. I'm not a big Christmas decorations guy. A few years ago, uh, the first house we owned, I loved it because there are no external outlets, so there's no opportunity to hang any Christmas lights. Um, And then we remodeled the house we're in right now, and Sarah's like, external outlets are a must. Um, which, and so now we have them. And a couple years ago, I went out and I bought Christmas lights and I hung it up on like a third of our house. And uh, afterwards, I took them down and I put them on a shelf in the garage. And uh, like a couple weeks later, I, I threw something uh, onto the shelf and it hit the lights and it broke all of the lights, all of which happened in front of my family. And since then, they've accused me of killing Christmas because I haven't yet replaced them at all. And my wife, whom I love so very dearly, actually took out my family this week 
and they drove around town without me and looked at all the other houses with Christmas lights. <laughs> and they came back, and they had a five-point uh, like, like manifesto of why I needed to go get Christmas lights uh, for our house to save Christmas. And uh, I didn't find them convincing at all, and we still don't have any Christmas lights. Uh, but, and, and because of that, there's a point I want to make here. And that's that despite all of this fear-mongering my wife does in my home, uh, no one has gone to the store, purchased lights, brought them home, plugged them in, made sure they worked, got those stupid plastic clips and put them on it, gone back to the shed, unloaded everything out to get to the ladder, bring the ladder to the front of the house, secure it on snowy and icy ground, and then hang from the gutter for an indefinite period of time. Why? Because even in my home, they realize that mere sentiment doesn't encourage costly living. That just because they like it, just because it gives them this Christmas spirit and this newfound affection for their dad, it's not enough to actually compel them. It's not motivating enough. And I'm sure at some portion in your life you felt that too. Sentimentality can get us to do a lot of things, but there's always a limit of what it costs. The shepherds were compelled to live in costly ways. You see, shepherds at this station in life were almost the bottom of the social ladder. Their testimony wasn't uh, accepted as reliable in any of the courts. They were excluded from almost all religious functions. They were not well-paid, they were not well-groomed, and they lived as social outcasts in the fields with their flocks. And yet, what these men encountered on this night was so compelling that they went on a specifically religious quest and did not fear rejection. They proclaimed an eyewitness testimony and did not care about irrelevance. They left their flocks in the middle of the night without fearing the consequences as it pertains to their work. Why? Well, maybe we would say if we encountered what they encountered, we would be compelled like that too. If you were sitting in the still of the night, away from the lights of the city, you're quietly there, maybe you're, behind, you're sitting around a fire, maybe you're just sitting, talking with your friends, and all of a sudden, angel appears. And then, like the glory of the Lord behind the angel. Who knows what that looks like, but I doubt it's the aurora borealis. It's something magnificent behind the angel, and then the angel speaks to you. Not in general, not out into the world, but he speaks to you. And then after he's done speaking to you, multitude of angels, all singing, all praising. And we would probably say, yeah, we would maybe respond to that at some level as well. That's the experience we all want with God, isn't it? When we go searching God, when we feel like we're at a lull with God, this is what we expect, if we're honest, isn't it? Like, we expect this very scene to come into our morning devotions with our poorly made coffee and our dimly lit rooms, and we could just be like, mm, this is it. This is why we do what we do. But what's interesting is that in this angelic encounter, in all of its sensory experience, that's not what captivated them. That's not what motivated them. Look at verse 15. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Here they are in this field which just became supernaturally miraculous. And they leave it to see a baby. And they go, and they're probably going to find this heavenly heralded baby in a cave. And they still go. It's not matching up with the sensory experience. But they leave it. Wouldn't we have just made our home in the field and waited for another thing? But they left. They went. Something beyond the sensory experience captivated them so much so that look at what they communicated when they arrived at the manger. Look at verses 16 through 17, continuing on. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now, if we are the shepherds, what part of our story would we communicate when we walk into a stranger's bedroom in the middle of the night? I'm going to guess it's the whole glory of the Lord singing angels bit. But what they communicated was the message. Not what they had heard, or what they had seen, but what they had heard. Not how they knew about the birth of Christ, but what they heard about the birth of the Messiah, what compelled them, and what ought to compel us when we think about following God, is ultimately God's word. It gave them the most disruptive experience of the night. And what did they hear? Well, we see this both in declaration and in song in verses uh, 10 through 14. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying in this angelic song, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So these angelic messengers come and they proclaim to the shepherds that a Savior has come. The Messiah, the Christ of God. And what stood out to me as I read this is, I think the most compelling part of this message for the shepherds were the two clauses where the angel says this, for unto you is born this day a Savior. This will be a sign for you. You see, the angel opens up by saying, this is for all people. But then he goes on to speak to these shepherds for you. Because of the outcast nature of the shepherds, I doubt that any generic savior 
would warrant such a risky and compelling response. But salvation was for them, for you, for those who were insignificant, for those who were broken, for those who had been turned away, for those without a reasonable hope, the Savior had come. Have you considered that in your own life? Have you considered the individual nature of God's salvation which has come in Jesus Christ and that it has come for you? He did not come in general. He came in specific for his people, for those who would respond for real people, for real people who feel like they have everything figured out but soon find out they don't, for people who feel and know they don't have anything figured out and feel like it never will. Jesus has come for you. The good news of the gospel is that a God as great and grand as this has not simply come to be a savior, but he has come to be your savior and the savior of those whom he would call to himself. This wonderful, heralded, long-awaited salvation is a salvation for you, as we'll see, to either believe or to reject. You see, we know so very little about the background of these shepherds, but what we know is that in a moment, they were convinced of their need for a Savior. Savior's been born, and they say, all of a sudden, I know I need saving. All of a sudden, I know I need whatever it is that this baby brings, and when they encounter Jesus, that encounter with him, even in all the mildness of the manger, changed them. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned to the same place, but they returned differently. Why? They were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You see, once you see that Jesus is the Savior you need for your sins, and the message is God's very message for you, you will be compelled in a way that sentimentalism can never compel. And you will go back to your home, you will go back to your job, but you will go back indelibly different because of what Jesus has done. And yet when we encounter, like the shepherds, such great news that speaks directly to our souls, our need to be delivered from our sin, we would expect an emotional response. Am I right? I was just talking with Terry before church, and we have this new method of cooking, and I said to him, changes your life, doesn't it? The truth is, it does not change your life. (laughs) But this does. And if The way we cook food can elicit an emotional response that we proclaim to those around us. How much more might being brought from death to life elicit an emotional response? So in that, how do we make sure that our response to Jesus is not like Christmas lights that are up for a season but then thrown on a shelf and you hope it makes it to next season? Well, this is where we look at Mary's response in all of this as well. Verses 17 through 18. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is the second point. We saw the the news compel the shepherds, but here we see the news of Jesus' birth captivate the heart of Mary. The news of Jesus' birth captivates our hearts. Now, I know I've said this before 
even when preaching on this text. I call this text the most momist of all texts in Scripture. Everything that's going on, and here's Mary making a precious moment scrapbook in her heart, treasuring all these things. But in spending time in this text this week, I realized that this is no mere sentimental treasuring. And we know this because it's set up as opposed to those who wondered. There were those who wondered, but Mary treasured. And the tones behind these words that are used in the Greek, behind the, the word uh, wondered, is, is some amazement, being impressed, being in awe of something. Kind of this responsive uh, reflection that comes with it. But the words behind Mary's treasuring and pondering carry his tones of keeping them in her mind. Literally defending them, making sure they cannot be taken away, storing them up, pondering them. You see, more than merely encountering all that Mary heard, she actually engaged with it. In Luke chapter 1, prior to this scene, an angel appears to Mary and tells her what's going to happen. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. And the angel said to her, that's to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so Mary, in this text, was already waiting She was waiting for this promise to come true. And on this night, the promise comes true. She gives birth to this uh, miraculously born son. And then on top of that, these shepherds come. And these shepherds double down on the promised nature of this son, proclaiming what the angels have said. And her response to all of this is to treasure it, to store it up, to ponder it. What is she treasuring? Well, I think Luke has helped us in showing Mary up until this point. She's treasuring the promise of God's salvation. She's treasuring the prophetic role the angels proclaimed and the Messiah King to whom she has just given birth. And she is doing some serious treasuring. See, I think in our culture today, we wrestle with a treasuring that looks like this. Our media age is so distracted. I saw an article just this week that said there's, uh, with all the, the, the watches, the smart watches going on, that there's this like epidemic of people reporting phantom vibrations in their arms, waiting for notifications to come, thinking notifications have come, but never actually being there. We are so distracted. It's always on to the next thing. Marketers prey on it. Your apps are designed to invoke it. Our commercials are aimed at it. Our attention span is so fractured. Since we had a baby uh, almost three weeks ago, a number of you guys have brought meals uh, to my wife and I. And this week, uh, someone brought over a meal and it, and it came with some salted caramels. And we love salted caramel at our house. It's from Trader Joe's, which makes it even more valuable here in Missoula. Uh, and my wife and I, we love chocolate. We love specifically caramel. Um, I think I like it decently. My wife thinks she likes it more, and I would agree, because she gets a little, like, golemish when we're around it. Um, and my response, generally, when I eat caramel, is to eat it and to say, I would like another. Please give me more of whatever this is, 
until it's gone or until I feel shamed enough to stop eating them. Um, and that's pretty much as deep as my reflection gets with caramel. But this uh, gift was a little different. It only had like 10 caramels in it, uh, which I was like, well, thanks for nothing. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but it was actually a game. It was a game where it, it said, these are the flavors of caramels that are in here, but it doesn't tell you which caramels are which. And so the, the goal is like a guessing game, like you take it and you try to write down which is which and then you flip it over and it tells you um, which ones you'd eaten. And uh, which meant I couldn't just eat caramels and just say this combination of chocolate and caramel is good and I would like another. I had to taste it. I had to ponder it. And my wife and I had to split each caramel. <laughs> which in any other circumstance, is not good. <laughs> and yet, it was one of the more enjoyable caramel-eating experiences and relational experiences <laughs> that I've ever had. I ate less, but I was deeply content because I forced myself to stop and to taste to consider, to engage. Have you ever considered the gospel which, with such a slow and savoring tongue, rolling it around in your mouth, seeing what it tastes like initially, what it tastes like later on, what the sensation is when you bite into it? You see, I'm sure that each of you have had times either in prayer or in worship or in Bible reading or in some concert experience out in the world where you have felt this warm, fuzzy feeling of powerful sentimentality. But have you ever stopped to question why or what it is that's provoking such a response? Or do we just treat it like a pile of junk food and just keep piling it, hoping that it never stops without ever tasting it? Have you looked at the birth of Jesus and just thought about it? Have you read Philippians 2 and considered how scandalous it would be that God would become a man and humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross? Have you gasped at the reality that he who knew no sin became sin? so that we might be made clean in the righteousness of God. May we at Sovereign Hope be a church that learns to treasure Christ like this. Now, there's a caveat. If we're not careful, we encounter all of the wonderful emotion of the nativity and all of the treasuring of Mary and we equate it to a specific experience of emotion. We say, if we treasure like Mary, then life in my walk with God will always be roses and riches. I will always have this transcendent, elated experience in life. And we can mistakenly think that if we are not in that moment tasting the sweetness of the gospel in such a profound way that we are less Christian than those who are around us. But... The same Mary that treasured here 
And you see at the end of chapter 3, she, this same thing comes up. Mary treasured these things in her heart. Is a Mary whose experience in the book of Luke is anything but always, all the time, elation. In fact, what we'll see when Simeon speaks to this newborn, this new mother whom he's never met before, he already is preparing her for the murder of her firstborn son. A few chapters later in Luke chapter 8, Mary and the rest of Jesus' family are going up to a house where Jesus is doing ministry. And they're saying, Jesus has lost it. (laughs) He's gone loony. This guy thinks he's the actual savior king of a spiritual kingdom. This Mary, by the end of the book, is going to watch her son suffer and die for the sins of the world. There will be times where Mary's experience is as far from this manger scene as you can ever imagine. And in those moments, she needed not to rely on what she encountered, but she needed to rely on the storehouses of what she treasured. And the same is true with us. What we have learned to treasure about the gospel is what we carry with us into any encounter we have in this world. As you're reading God's word, when you go to God in prayer, when you're you're sitting here in church, we're about to take communion afterwards and sing some more. When you do that, don't neglect the hard work of treasuring, of storing up, of guarding, of pondering. We're starting a new Bible reading plan this year, and we're going to have, I think, posts out this week and some resources in the back that we want the whole church to do this plan together so we can talk about it together and pray for each other together. And I want us to be careful because it's very easy to read your Bible without ever reading God's Word. Where we can sit down and we can read and read and then check a box and walk away and not ever consider that God is speaking to you. Not ever stop and say, what is this saying? And what does it look like to treasure this? To think about it. To apply it. To praise God for it. To ask for repentance because of sins I see in my heart. Because you need to learn to to experience the taste of this gospel when the buffet is before you. So that in times of famine, you can still remember deep in your treasuring heart what it tastes like. Even when it seems the caramels are far away. Because the truth is there is going to be times... This is Advent. This is where we celebrate that Christ has come. He has come. The waiting period is over. But for Mary, there's a lot of waiting left to do. For us, there is still much waiting left for us to do. And if we have not learned to treasure this news, then we will not be able to endure with this news. And this is where we look at our last point this morning. The news of Jesus' birth endured the heart of Simeon, the subject of this last story we're going to see in Scripture. And so we're kind of fast-forwarding from the Christmas story. Everything leading up to this dealt with kind of the night of Jesus' birth. And then we see this aside um, that we'll look at in a second, which puts us roughly 40 days after Jesus' birth. And in fulfillment of the law, part of Jesus' perfect obedience, um, the law said that firstborn children needed to go and be presented at the temple. And so this is the scene that records um, that fulfillment. Let's begin in verses 21. We're going to read through 32. At the end of eight days, 
when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, this is now 40 days out, they brought him to Jerusalem, which is where the temple was, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, that is, to be sanctified to him, and to offer a sacrifice according to what, the, what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. If your experience with the gospel goes no further than superficial sentimentality, you will not endure in seasons of waiting. And this is why I love the story of Simeon in this text. We don't know a lot about Simeon. This is, Luke is the only gospel writer who includes this specific story. We aren't sure if he had an official position at the temple or if he just frequented it there, but we do know a couple things about him. Luke says he was righteous and devout. And in a time where most Israel wants nothing to do with following God or holding God's laws, here Simeon was faithfully following God's law, desiring to please him in everything. We know that he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. That's the language Luke uses here. And I love this language because what does the need for consolation assume? It assumes we need to be consoled. It assumes that everything's not right. It assumes that things need to be put back into place. It assumes that with an honest eye, you ought to be able to look into your own heart or to look out into the world and say it shouldn't be this way. It assumes that a real solution is needed because of a real problem. And Simeon knew that the same God, the God of Israel who had created the world, was a God who had promised to send his Christ. That's a title, Christ the Messiah. It's not his last name. It's a role. That the Christ would come, the Messiah would come, and he would put right what was broken. He would mend the sins that separated men from God, and he would be the one to reunite all things. And so we know that Simeon's life was a life given over to waiting. Specifically so. The Holy Spirit had in some way, where Luke doesn't tell us, told Simeon that he would not die until he sees the Lord's Christ. You can imagine the blessing and burden this would be. How blessed to know that your eyes will see salvation. But what a burden to wake up every day and to look at broken, sacrificial systems, to look at Pharisees who what Jesus says are doing nothing but tying burdens on people, unwilling to lift a finger to even help them. And to say, when? To doubt every night 
after more pain and more sorrow and more suffering, is God able to do this? But then one day, the Holy Spirit in his wonderful movement brings Mary and Joseph and Jesus to the temple and Simeon comes into the temple in the spirit and here this man who they've never met picks up a baby he's never seen and he blesses the Lord and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now here's the wonder of this. What did Simeon see? One and a half chapters of the Gospel of Luke is what he saw. He saw a baby. A baby being commissioned in the service to the Lord, and as soon as he saw it, he's like, Lord, take me home. I've seen it. He didn't see a conquering king. He didn't see nations trembling at the hope of Israel. He didn't see uh, uh, the military might of God. He didn't see a single leper cleansed, a single wound healed, a single miracle performed, but he knew the consolation had come. Why? After all of this waiting, after all of this yearning, after thousands and thousands of years of Israel waiting for this Messiah, he sees a baby and he's like, this is it. Because he knows that if God has sent his Messiah, if even as a baby, this God will see redemption through to the end. That God means what he promises and will perform his consolation. And he looks to Mary and Joseph afterwards and he says this in verses 33 through 35. And his father and his mother marveled about what was said, or marveled at what was said about him, that's Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then here's this aside predicting that Mary will suffer as Jesus suffers. A sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. So here's why it's important for us to question either our sentimentality towards Jesus or even our disdain of Jesus. Because Simeon here is showing us that Jesus came to reveal your hearts. And Luke chapter 2 shows us there are all sorts of options you could have. You can, like the shepherd, see Jesus as a sign which reveals in your heart the light of God's salvation. Or you can, like Simeon refers to, see that Jesus is a sign which will provoke your constant opposition of sin in your heart. And the culmination of all of the emotion of the nativity scene is how you respond to this sign. This news that God sees the brokenness in your heart he sees the brokenness in your world. He knows that your sins demand death and he has sought to console those through his Messiah. I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know what's going on at this season. But what I do know is that you're waiting. Everyone is waiting for this news. 
If you're a non-believer in here or someone dragged you to church during this holiday season and you're just waiting for this long-winded guy to finish up his talk, this is what you've been waiting for. You see, the shepherds had no idea they were waiting for anything. If you ask the shepherds what they were doing, they were doing their job. They were running out the clock, waiting for the shift to finish. And maybe you're just hoping that this season of forced religiosity will maybe just pass by and you could get back to whatever it is you wanted to do with your life. But when the good news of the gospel came to them, they knew it demanded a response. They knew as the angels proclaimed that peace had finally come, not only had it come, but it had come for those with whom God is pleased. Which is a problem. (laughs) Because any sober thought knows that we do not please God. Ephesians 2 says that we at one point were like children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our sin does not place us under the pleasure of God, but under the punishment of God. But when the good news of this Messiah, this Christ, this saving one comes, those who had no peace are finally given it. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 19 through 20. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Only in Jesus can those who sit waiting for nothing, presumably so, hear that Jesus has come to solve the problem you never knew you had with a solution you never dreamed possible. You see, I love this. In the gospel, Shepherds are called from their flocks. Fishermen are called from their nets. And in the gospel, Jesus is calling you to something better as well. Would you consider that he's not just after shallow, superficial emotions, that you would like Jesus? He's after your heart, that you would worship him as Lord. That you would go back to the rest of your life glorifying and praising God for what he's done in history. May many shepherds be woke this morning by the gospel of Jesus. For others, will you see this promise of God's salvation as something deeply enduring? What Mary needed at the manger, Simeon modeled in the temple, and that is deep, enduring trust, even when life is hard. This week was a hard week for me. There was no sentimental joy of ministry or of the Christmas season. I don't know why. It wasn't clear to me. I was weighted. I was burdened. I feel like someone told Johnny because he prayed for me. And I'm like, I didn't tell Johnny. I wanted to silently suffer with this. And it was just a hard, long week. But in God's wonderful providence, he ordained that a weak and melancholy preacher would be forced to articulate the waiting and abiding hope of Advent. And this is where the hard work of Mary and of Simeon caused me to do the hard work of gospel waiting because here in Simeon we have a man who at the simple sight of an infant savior knew that God was good on his word. He knew that God would make good on his promise to bring peace, that God was good to redeem his people, that God was good to never depart from his elect, that God was good to love the unlovable and console those who needed consolation. And he was willing to give up everything. But haven't we seen more than Simeon? 
We have seen not only his birth, we have seen his perfect law-keeping life, the righteousness we need Jesus lived. We saw not only his perfect life in our place, but we saw his sacrificial death in our place. And then we saw the life that he gives in raising him from the dead. We have heard his promise, not only that he's going to come once, but he's going to come twice to make all things new. We have seen in the church throughout centuries people gathering and waiting, hopefully, joyfully, amidst tribulation and trial and tears and triumph. Should we not even more than Simeon rejoice in this hope that God has given for all of life? You see, this Advent season where the lights and the sights remind ourselves of sentiment, may it remind ourselves of the same hope which we should cling now in December and in the terrible time of February in Missoula and in the joys of July and in the defeats of life that Christ has come. That we no longer wait without a sign of God's promise but that he has worked and he has accomplished and now we hope. That is no light sentimentality. That is enduring, captivating, and compelling gospel joy. The real needs of our world and of our heart are provided for abundantly in Jesus so that we might rejoice with Mary in the moment when everything is so dear and near, we rejoice. Like the shepherds, when it seems like God has shown the light of revelation into our heart, we rejoice. And like Simeon, when it seems that God is silent, we can hope and know that we will rejoice. You see, sentimentality fixes nothing and saves no one. But Jesus does. And that is a better hope to sing to trust, and to wait. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us hearts to wait. Even as we take the Lord's Supper today, I call them, it's like Costco samples of the meal which awaits us in heaven. It's just enough to make us want more, but not enough to satisfy us because it's not in heaven until you have made all things right where we will ever be completely satisfied. So help us realize that just because we don't have everything in full does not mean we lack the fullness of hope. Lord, we repent of places where we have refused to listen to your word where we long once more for the sky to light up with your glory instead of realizing that your glory is primarily in your word. Or may we repent of places where we relate our standing with you on mere emotional responses instead of a deep, enduring treasury of the hope of God in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we repent in places where we have waited poorly, we're unlike Simeon, maybe we're prone to stop going, to stop hoping, and to look for something else. Lord, we thank you that because Christ has come, we have hope, and hope abundantly. We pray this in your name. Amen.